This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, April 1st, 2017. Today's topic, by the way, is life, death, and D&D. And let me expand on that title for just a moment. Life's talking about the new movie, Life. Uh, that I just shot, just just saw this week. Death is referring to Ghost in the Shell, which I also saw this week, last night. End point of fact. And D and D is referring to our special guest, Mr. Rick Stump, from the blog Don't Split the Party. A link to which can be found in the description beneath the video. We are going to get to him as soon as we run through. Two quick movie reviews, but before that, John, how was your week? It's been a good week. It's been a stressful week. I've been a little under the weather, but uh, life is good. Played another D&D game. Really excited to talk to Mr. Rick Stump about that today. Uh, I know you guys like hearing updates on that. Um, other than that, just geeking out as usual. Brian, how was your week? Oh, full full of professional and religious fulfillment. Um, no, I actually got to do some retro gaming because that, that's really my bag. Um, I, I played a, an original NES game that I somehow missed, and I'm kicking myself. And that's uh, Gunsmoke by Capcom, which is a Western shoot 'em up, and it, it's fantastic. I don't know how I missed it all those years. I, I will confess, I've never ever heard of it. I, I've heard of it, and I, I missed it, too. I never played it. Yeah, missed it, too. Wow, yeah, it, it, it's phenomenal. Um, you just, you know, play, you know, like the uh, the bounty hunters rolled into town, and it, it plays almost like those uh, top-down shoot-em-ups. Really, it is one, where you're, like, in a helicopter or a plane or something, flying up a scrolling screen and shooting at waves of enemies coming at you. Only in this case, like you're, you're a cowboy and you're you're shooting, you know, at, at bandits and stuff. And the uh, the controls are really innovative because the uh, B button shoots your your left gun and the A button shoots your right one at an angle, and you have to hold them both down to shoot straight forward. So it is the best game to play with the NES Max Turbo Controller because you just press both of those suckers down or like fan them, and you just spray a, a spread of death in, in front of you and you, you can buy upgrades like a shotgun or a horse and um, before you can find the boss you've got to locate the boss's wanted poster in every level otherwise the level just keeps infinitely scrolling forever until you find the wanted poster and then the boss shows up I want you to know that I have literally loaded this thing up right now and it is fan-fucking-tastic <laughs> <laughs> Nerds on the loose with the internet. This is this is uh, this yeah. is fine, fine eight-bit gaming here, guys. I don't know. I picked. I keep picking up rifles out of these barrels. Do they do anything for me? Not until you buy a different gun, I believe. <clears throat> and and what's and what's an NES game without a, a power-up called POW that just blows everything up on the uh, screen? Oh, yeah, I remember those. 
from the Donkey Kong days, man. <laughs> way, way back. Okay. Or the old console game, Heavy Barrel. Yeah, same thing. Um, or uh, Ikari Warriors in the arcade. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let's, uh, let's jump real quick to the movie reviews so we can get on discussing D&D and Conan and other such stuff. Um, Life is the new Ryan Reynolds' Jake Gyllenhaal movie. It is a sci-fi horror movie. And the best thing I can say about it is the special effects at the time when I saw the movie, I thought they were phenomenal. Um, since then, however, I have gone to and seen Ghost in the Shell. And so I've kind of had to revise my definition of what phenomenal special effects are. Um, the worst thing I can say about life is this. There are precisely two plot twists in the entire movie and I saw both of them coming months ago and uh, they both happened and it was very, very disappointing to me. So if you know it's a sci-fi horror film and you know that it's set on a space station and you know that an alien creature of intemperate character gets loose on the International Space Station, then pretty much you can guess the rest of the movie. It's not surprising. It's not shocking. It's not, I don't know. It's not even interesting, really. I mean, they tried really hard to make each character different and distinct and to give them characteristics and stuff, but it just, uh, it did not sustain my interest. And it felt like they were kind of going through the motions of doing just another sci-fi horror movie. So. Um, that's, that's too bad. Are, are they just... Uh... Does it feel like they're cashing in on the upcoming Prometheus? No, it doesn't feel like... I mean, the person who wrote it actually tried to make an interesting and original and unique monster that just happened to make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Supposedly, this creature begins as a tiny little one-celled organism and begins to grow... And supposedly every single cell in its body is simultaneously a muscle cell and a photoreceptor for vision and a neuron. So its entire body is brain, its entire body is muscle, and its entire body is eyes. That's, that's the shtick of the creature. Well, but, it's good work if you can get it. Yeah. yeah it's... Uh, the creature ends up being... Somewhat interesting. The monster is the most interesting part of the movie. I could definitely see ripping off this monster and using it in some kind of horror game um, of any one of a number of different descriptions, but it's it's definitely not. Um, it's just the movie itself is not superb uh, or really mostly entertaining. So, If your whole body was eyes, it seems like it would be really painful to eat McDonald's fries that way. Just salt. That's why it's angry. That could very well be. Okay. Um, so we're going to leave the space station with all of its assorted ghosts behind, if you see what I did there, and talk ghost in the show. Um, now, fair warning, those of you listening to the show, I have actually seen the anime Ghost in the Shell 20 years ago. Once. I haven't watched Ghost in the Shell um, any of the other sequels, not standalone complex, not anything else. And I haven't read any of the manga or, uh, 
any of the Western comics. So I'm not coming into this as a diehard Ghost in the Shell fan. People who are diehard fans of the original movie will likely have different expectations for the movie that I doubt that the movie is going to necessarily live up to. I don't know what those expectations are. I just know that this movie, I took a good friend of mine, Brian, uh, who we've talked on the show because most of the time I end up going to see movies it's because he has called me up and said, hey, want to go see a movie? Oh, sure, I guess. Um, and he has a lot more knowledge about Ghost in the Shell than I do. And he said, well, this particular part in the movie is originally from Standalone Complex, but the main part of it is from the first Ghost of the Shell. And there's a little bit of characters added in from this other uh, part of the Ghost in the Shell universe. So you got to understand, it doesn't follow the continuity of anything else. It's, it's explicitly not uh, in continuity with the rest of the Ghost in the Shell works. It is an adaptation of it that stands alone. And uh, the other thing is, people are worried about spoilers, about whether or not what you saw in the trailers spoiled the movie for you. All I can say is this, what you saw in the trailers, with one exception, is basically the opening scene of the movie. So all that they spoiled was the beginning of the movie for you. Now, if you're the sort that can't stand having the absolute beginning of a movie spoiled, well, then I'm apologize. Those those uh, trailers have done you wrong. But for the most part, all of the major events that you saw in the trailers happen right smack dab at the beginning. And after that, you're in, mo for the most part, stuff they didn't show in trailers, so you don't have to worry about that. The... As I alluded to, the movie is visually stunning. It is absolutely incredible special effects. Uh, it succeeds in creating a unique feel to itself that somewhat resembles other science fiction worlds we've seen in the past, but primarily is its own thing. It's very, very uh, compelling. It feels lived in. It feels real. Um, it feels like an authentic universe. There were... Um, so the performances were all excellent. They've got really good actors to do all the parts, except for Scarlett Johansson. I've realized that Scarlett Johansson, since she got out of doing like quirky dramas and got into doing um, genre picks, like the superheroes and the Lucy, uh, Black Widow, Lucy, um, all of those, she's seemed to have given up on actually acting. She's very, very monotone in all of her roles. It would be really, really hard to tell that this wasn't Black Widow, except that she doesn't reference being Russian all the time. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate because it's such a great movie, and she actually does a decent job. She just doesn't do a great job, and she doesn't do the kind of job that we know she's capable of from, like, Lost in Translation. She never even tries, it seems to me, to put in that much effort to rise to that level of acting. Um, but the rest of the characters are all well done, even bit parts. They've got really good actors cast in them, so they come alive. Um, it is not... People are going to say this is a major knock. It is not a major knock from me. It is uh, a plot the likes of which we have seen before several times. So 
but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Um, I mean, you can have revenge plots in movies, and if they do it well, it's a good movie, even if you've seen, like, the first John Wick. They hurt him, they kill his dog, they steal his car, they make him mad, and he goes off and kills a bunch of them. That's the basic outline of that as a plot we've seen a lot of times. That doesn't make it a bad movie. In fact, it's not a bad movie. It's a great movie. I'm not saying Ghost in the Shell is that good, but I am saying that people who complain, oh, no, this is a plot that we've seen before. Well, so what? Movies uh, and stories can recycle plots as long as they're done well, it doesn't matter. People are saying, well, this doesn't really push science fiction forward any. There's no real novel ideas here. Uh, it, it, it doesn't expand the boundaries of like really imagined. It, it's based on a 20-year-old anime, okay? 20 years. It's not meant to push the boundaries of science fiction forward. It's retelling that story in a slightly different format, made to fit, uh, made to appeal to Western audiences. Which brings me to the last thing that I did find really distracting and annoying is in two specific instances, the movie assumes that you, the audience, are absolute, utter idiots. Absolutely. Because almost the second sentence actually said in the movie is explaining what ghost in the shell means. What ghost means, what shell means, what ghost in the shell means, as if otherwise you would be too stupid to wait to pick that up during the rest of the movie. Just bam, right out of the gate. Almost the second sentence spoken in the movie. It was really distracting, and it seemed out of character for them to just jump in there with like, hey, no, don't get scared, here's what the title really means, please don't run away, audience, please like this, it's a cool movie, we promise. The filmmakers, I don't know if this was a result of a note from some kind of studio executive or something, the filmmakers should have had more confidence in the material, they should have had more confidence in the audience, and they should have just let that stuff come out organically because they discuss it. Several times during the rest of the movie, there was no need to dump it on the audience right up front, especially when you've got great visuals, an interesting story, and all this other stuff going on, it just wasn't necessary. So. Um, I really enjoyed the movie. I liked it a lot. I would definitely go and watch it again. Um, I would probably buy it on DVD or whatever and watch it again. I thought the visuals were just absolutely fabulous. The world they created was authentic and compelling. And Scarlett Johansson's performance was still above and beyond most actresses. But it was a little flat and it's not up to what we know she can do. But that's been kind of her problem ever since she got caught up in the Marvel Universe. She just isn't turning out as compelling of performances as she can, as she is capable of. She's not pushing herself as an actress. So, um, yeah, I'd recommend it. Go see it, unless you're absolutely a big, big fan of the anime, and you expect it to be absolutely faithful to the anime, I would maybe not go see it in the theaters, because you're likely to be disappointed. Any questions? Well, I, I think I think everybody's just in agreement that they'd all rather sit down and watch standalone complex episodes. <laughs> uh, I plan on watching the rest, uh, the other 
Ghost in the Shell stuff later, but this is a re well, I don't know. If you're, if you're a really big fan of Ghost in the Shell, you might not enjoy this movie, but I thought this was a fabulous movie. I, I enjoyed it. I was not sitting there thinking, man, I wasted all my money on this. That's always a good yeah. feeling, yes. Yeah, I'm interested to see what, what I think now, because I am a huge Ghost in the Shell fan. Uh, Silent Complex is my favorite anime series of all time. This was my favorite police procedural like in, in any format, so... Um, I think the movie now. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and introduce our, our special guest, who we intended to be on the show two weeks ago before the dreaded gremlins of technical problems sprung up and struck us down again. Uh, our guest's name is Rick Stump. He's a blogger. He blogs at Don't Split the Party. And once again, a link to that is in the description. He blogs about old school D&D and, and other stuff. You want to say hi to everybody, Rick? Hi, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. I'm sorry it didn't work out two weeks ago, but it, it worked out now, so it's fine. Let me ask you this. You reached out to uh, to us at the show and asked if you can come on, and um, mm -hmm. we we're, of course, excited to have you on. Um, was there anything specific you wanted to discuss, you wanted to, um, you know, bring out on the show, or did you just want to hang out with such amazingly cool guys as, as we, the hosts, are? Well, it was definitely a chance to hang out with amazingly cool guys, and um, that was that was foremost in my mind. I, actually, uh, your your reviews point to a bit of a confluence here. You're, you're talking about plots and how some people say, well, we've seen this plot before. And one of my most um, well-read and reshared uh, posts recently was about plotting in, in classic stories and old-school plots and stuff uh, when I was writing about Conan recently. So, there you go. Good time. You, you had a different take on Conan um, that I think kind of caught a lot of people off. Because Conan is uh, usually, quite often, referred to in an offhand manner as a thief. Um, right. And he does, I mean, he does spend time as a pirate um, with right. Bellin. He does spend time in just about, I think, like three or four different kinds of piracy. As a corsair and a pirate mm -hmm. and a buccaneer. Um and so, obviously, that is part of his character. But you were bringing out some other stuff that uh, that you thought was, or that at least seemed to me to be against what is the most common interpretation of Conan. Well, I, I, again, yes, you're absolutely right. It, it's, a, it's very complex. Uh, inside the stories, Conan um, leaves home at the age of 15 or 16 after attacking basically a civilized outpost, spends time as a mercenary in the north, then is effectively a thief in um, a Baghdad clone for quite some time, then wanders around, like you said, he's a pirate three or four times, he's a leader of Cossacks, he's a leader of Desert Warriors, he's a general, you know, all this stuff that culminating with him becoming, uh, usurping a throne and becoming king, but he does spend a lot of time not acting like a thief, but flat out being a thief, but at the same time, um, he's not materialistic in any way, shape, or form, which is weird. But it's true. Um, you know, Robert E. Howard was very open in his correspondence that he was talking about civilization when he wrote about Conan. He wanted to write good stories and he wanted to be to sell them and make money, but he he insisted that what he was writing about was civilization. And you can really see that with Conan, and you can see how people have trouble grappling with uh, what was just understood at the time. I think the most stark for me is when I was researching the article, I ran across 
a Wikipedia entry for one of the most popular original Conan stories, The Tower of the Elephant. Uh, real quick synopsis. Uh, there's a tower, a tower called the Tower of the Elephant. Conan hears it. It's got this massive jewel in it called the Heart of the Elephant. He, he decides he's going to steal it. He sneaks in the tower, finds out that the wizard got his power by torturing what is effectively an extraterrestrial. He kills the extraterrestrial so its spirit will be free to return home and then skedaddles with his pockets empty. Um, the author of the review on Wikipedia thought it was terrible writing because he's in a room full of diamonds and he doesn't take any diamonds even though he's a thief. When he gets to the heart of the elephant, he doesn't take it with, take it with him even though he's wildly, it would make him wildly wealthy. And that's because Robert E. Howard was pointing out Conan wasn't stealing the heart of the elephant to be fabulously wealthy. He's going to steal the heart of the elephant to be the guy who stole it, right? He wasn't there to steal a fistful of rubies, so he didn't take any rubies with him. He was, and when he found out that it was actually this creature that had been tortured and maltreated and et cetera, he set it free, and his, you know, his objectives changed to a completely non-material objective, and when he was done, he was left and he was happy, right? A very different sort of outlook than you're going to see in a lot of contemporary writing. A contemporary author, he's, you know, you're going to have this like, well, he's going to stuff his pockets full of gems. He's going to get out of there and because it's about the cash. Um, in another scene, another famous scene, Conan has a split second to choose between saving a slave girl who's already betrayed him a couple times or a chest full of, you know, incredibly valuable jewels. And he doesn't even hesitate. He grabs a girl and then asks why she's upset. It's just, it's just money, right? So Conan was a thief. But he wasn't greedy, which is, you know, kind of interesting. But some of the commentary you get from uh, Howard was he was pointing out some of the strangenesses, as he called them, of civilization. I believe he explicitly said this once, but it may have actually been included by Lynn Carter when he was punching up a story. Was in a barbarian village, when the famine comes, everyone goes hungry the same way. In a rich city. When a famine comes, the poor can starve to death next to a building full of food, right? Um, so you, you have this outlook of Conan. Conan was motivated by wanderlust. He just wanted to see what's next deal. He wasn't motivated by materialism. He, you know, based upon what you see in the books, he has not a racist bone in his body. Um, even though his author was a white guy from Texas in the 30s, Conan himself gladly worked with you know, Asians, blacks, whoever, he didn't care if you were reliable and competent. So, you know, it was a, Conan's very complicated, and yet he's often presented as a very one-dimensional, oh, he's got a sword and he's stupid and he's, um, he kills people. Uh, when most of the stories are about him having to outwit people instead of just beat them to death. See, Frazetta's paintings, although oh, yeah, great fabulous stuff. painting, absolutely great, they, they don't depict the literary character. And I think a lot of what the opinions, I, I, I don't, and I don't mean they're not pictures of Conan himself. You can't in one image or even a series of 20 images depict all the complexity of a character like Conan, because it, again, he makes different choices. He does different things. And so all you have is that one image and you can say, well, a picture is worth a thousand words. And, and the answer is yes. But all of the Conan images by Frazetta speak of a man of action, a man of combat. He's you know naked from the waist up. He's got a big sword. And I'm yep. not saying they're uh, misleading. What I'm saying is fools who haven't read 
any of the stories mm-hmm. who haven't actually read Robert E. Howard assume that all there is to know about Conan can be seen in those pictures, can be seen in those paintings, can be seen in those black and white illustrations, and that therefore all that Conan is is what they saw in that picture, and it's just not the case. Oh, sure. I mean, you see a lot of guys, uh, you see a lot of commentary about that, about uh, the assumptions that the books must be sexist because this painting appears to have been sexist. Well, that scene never appears in any of the stories, you know, or... Uh, all of his enemies are dark-skinned, so it must be racist. Well, no, actually, if you read, that's all of his crew backing him up. Um, you know, that's the, the, his boss is a black guy, and those are all of his co-workers in a, in a very real way. You just don't understand the painting and what's going on. But, you know, the, the leap into conclusions, um, I think that's actually the, the least of the problems. What you really see, uh, it was a little bit in the first movie, uh, but the second movie in particular really sort of dumbed down Conan very badly. You know, he's very quick, quick-witted, quick with his tongue. Um, but as I mentioned in my, in my uh, essay there, what's really killing heroic fantasy is the concept that all heroic tales must follow the path of the hero that uh, was sort of invented whole cloth back in the 40s. Yeah, and if, you know, you, you get a position now where I, I would have to look up the studio again, but... You know, at least one studio said all heroic stories will be using this. And it's a practical guide to the hero with a thousand faces. And it's basically saying Hollywood in general is just going to use this one plot for all heroic stories. And it's, it's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous arc. It was criticized by academics at the time when it first came out as not representing clearly any actual heroic uh, sagas from history. It's so vague that you can cobble it together to fit almost anything, but it doesn't do a good job of describing anything at all. There's so it, it, it's like forcing this vanilla blandness. You know, the hero always has to be reluctant. He always has to refuse being a hero and on and on and on. And it's the same stuff over and over. And, and it just leeches the actual heroism out. You know, when you, when you look at traditional s- stories, heroes were often eager to look for, for trouble. Um, so, I don't know. And I think that Conan is one of the first victims of that, uh, simply because the, when the first movie was made, those guys were just coming out of film school in large ways, and it was getting to the point where that was just hitting all the schools as this is how you tell heroic stories. And I think it's really sort of nerfed him for the last 30 years. I, uh, the three-act structure and Hero of the Thousand Faces or the hero's journey um, are the two things that, that – I loathe more about writing advice than just about anything. You just, um, I can't overstate how stupid they are, how restrictive they are, and how much they're just going to turn. If you follow them to make a book, you're just going to churn out a carbon copy of every other epic fantasy book that everyone else has written. And no matter how cool the ideas you have, no matter how interesting the ideas you have, if your characters go through the same beats at the exact same time as everybody else, if they follow that curve around uh, at the same time as everybody else, you say, okay, well, halfway through the book, it should be halfway through act two, and then this should happen, and that should happen. Your book is going to be boring, and people are going to hate it. You have to do something else and start with throwing away the three-act structure. Start with throwing away um, 
the hero's journey, the man of a thousand faces, whatever, oh, sure. get rid of it, do something original. And if you have to break your mind out of that mindset, go read some really, really old fantasy and that'll help you break your mind out of that modern bland. Um, well, absolutely. I think that everyone that wants to write fantasy should read H. Ryder Haggard, right? Uh, go read the people of the mist and tell me that's not going to give you a thousand ideas for great books and great com campaigns in, in role playing, you know, and that's in the that's in the 19th century, late 19th century. Great stuff. Well, here, here's a trick that I used to do. There's a couple of joke games that you can play. For example, you pick a Stephen R. Donaldson book, flip through it random. Get, you get two guys, get a copy of the same book, flip through randomly, and the first guy to find the word clench win, right? <laughs> um, and there's another one is take a book, see how many pages it is, flip to the middle, right? Flip to the middle and start looking for the dis for the uh, discussion the hero has where a woman that he barely knows imparts a great deal of wisdom to him, right? If the book's 200 pages, it's going to be somewhere between page 92 and page 110, right? Just open up the book there, start looking, and you're going to find it's going to be a speech from some woman that he barely knows who's going to give him a great deal of, because it's in the Hero of a Thousand Faces. He has to meet so-and-so who gives him his information. So, he, you know, it's, it's very, like you said, it's very cookie cutter. And it's, um, it's the opposite of writing. I mean, at this point, it sounds a lot more like um, Mad Libs than it does like writing. You know, I wish you paint by numbers, but... Right. Just put in your verbs and your adjectives and and um, put in your names that sound vaguely like something Tolkien would have done if he wasn't a professional linguist and then move forward, you know? Um, right. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I noticed, you talked about the story um, where he has a choice between saving the girl and saving the gems. Uh, and one of the things I noticed about that story is that it's absolutely could serve as a template for a mega dungeon. Um, oh, sure. The Jewels of Gualur, although I would say Red Nails is a better red, uh, mega dungeon template. Jewels of Gualur, uh, a story, talks about a, yeah, a temple in a mountain and it's got, you know, basically ape-like creatures. Uh, carnivorous apes guarding it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm in. Uh, yeah, I've got a stack of notebooks over here, and I've got Jewels of Gwalor, a dungeon based on it over there from about 1982. <laughs> um, and I've been working on a Red Nails dungeon, which is basically uh, a massive three story building that's big enough that it's actually a city. Um, but yeah, Howard had a ton of ideas. And the, the thing that people forget about Howard is in the space of about six months, he invented whole cloth, two entire genres of writing that we take for granted right now, right? Um, I want to say it's 1932, but I have to look at my notes. He tried to sell a Western, couldn't sell it. And he tried to sell a vampire story, couldn't sell it. And he was sitting there depressed. And he made a story about a cowboy finding a vampire. <laughs> it's great. It's a great story. Especially in the end, the cowboy beats the, the vampire by boxing him to death. <laughs> you know, he basically uh, punches the, the vampire until he's uh, messed up, breaks his back, and throws him in a fire. So he invented the Weird West right there, whole cloth, boom. And then he'd been trying to sell some more historical fiction, and he couldn't get it to work. And he'd also been trying to sell a ghost story and couldn't get it to work. So he combined and made the Phoenix and the Sword the first Conan short story and invented Swords and Sorcery. That's it. That's quite the legacy, you know. Um, one year, within six months of each other, inventing Weird West and Swords and Sorcery. 
the guy was creative and he used a ton of different plots. He used a ton of different motivations. Uh, his character is very nuanced and complex. It was, it's a fascinating, it's fascinating to actually go back as an adult and read what he actually wrote and just how good it actually is. Um, let me ask a question real quick. Now, sure. that was, that one uh, post got a lot of attention because mm -hmm. it got picked up by Jeffro and, and taken around the pulp revolution. Um, mm -hmm. But mostly your blog John is Wright, about... John Wright actually commented on it and wrote to me. It was very nice to see that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but you, your blog is uh, very often or usually about um, OSR, right. uh, Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. So we, I don't think we've had anybody from the OSR community on the show before. I can't oh, remember. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, other, well, I mean... Jeffro's been on the show twice, so Jeffro is, is yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's OSR yeah. adjacent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a big, big booster of... Uh, oh, he is. He is. He's got a lot more going on than that. Yeah, but yeah, well, if you haven't had another guy on, yeah, let's see. Um, it's been 16 days since the anniversary of the first time I played D&D &D in 1977. So I've been playing for 40 years. Wow. Yeah. And um, let's say I start with the OD&D books, uh, some college kids, uh, two of the, the two girls were in the group insisted they let me play. Uh, I still, you know, last time I saw them both, I thanked them. <laughs> uh, and then I just started playing on my own. I'm my, as a matter of fact, the campaign I made in 79 uh, called Seaward is still running. It's still running now. So, uh, yeah, I've been doing it a long time. So, so, so your your campaign is running longer than The Simpsons, is what you're saying? Yes, my campaign uh, in August will hit 38 years old. Um, yeah, it's got a it, it's got a lot of accretions. I've done a, a reboot twice, you know, where I've uh, done a slight changes here and there. But yeah, matter of fact, uh, my kids crack jokes. I've got I've been digitizing this stuff for a long, long time. Um, but it's down to the point where I believe that I have every village inside the kingdom detailed out, named, and you know all that stuff. After all this time, um, and it's got a mega dungeon in it uh, that I started back in the day, Skull Mountain, and I've got my current team is going through it. They're they're kind of afraid to go down to level three. It took them five, I think, five expeditions. They cleared out the top level five at separate times. And they did the second level, so yeah, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's pretty much the, my main hobby. It has been since I was um, single digits old. Well, that's fantastic. No, I love it, and I've I've done a lot of stuff. I've done, uh, I've been playing pretty pretty seriously for a long time. I've played virtually every game that was released between about 1975 and about 1995 for sure. Teenagers from Outer Space, Outer Space, Stormbringer, um. Empire of the Petal Throne, you name it. And um, it was, it was, what's really fascinating to me, though, is about 2014, I I'd had had a very busy career, uh, tossing in five kids. I've got five children. And uh, while I was gaming, I wasn't doing a lot online. I don't like forums, for example, so I don't do a lot with forums and such. <laughs> so I wasn't really aware of the OSR. So when I started first blogging, I had somebody go, hey, your OSR, you should have an OSR badge. I'm like, well, what is that? He goes, oh, it's all about first edition, second edition. So I put the badge on my my page and then started learning about the OSR and, and Osric, et cetera. And I'm actually very glad to be involved simply because I think that a lot of the core 
elements of those first that first decade in particular of D&D are basically evergreen. And that's focus on creativity, focus on customization, uh, and focus on having a good interaction um, at the actual physical table. Uh, most so. of the audience, at least the, the people in the chat, are well aware of what the OSR is. The uh, mm-hmm. um, But it's possible um, that uh, some people listening don't know what the old school revival or old school renaissance is. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this very very quickly. Oh, go right ahead. Yeah. Back in the beginning, there was first edition AD and D, and it was based on all the stuff in Appendix N, which I've talked about on the show so many times. Second edition AD and D came out, and it was based more around the kind of novels that had become popular at the time, which is the Shannara novels, Rift Worlds, Dragonlance, things like that. Third edition D and D came out, and, and I'm skipping all of the all of the basic right, right. I'm skipping. Yeah, yeah. BCMI, I'm skipping Holmes. Sorry, guys. I'm skipping Mulvey. All that. We're just going to do this really, really quick. Third edition came out in uh, 2000. And in addition to completely revamping the mechanics of D&D, it also introduced a open source license that released all of the mechanics of D&D into the wild to where anybody could do anything they wanted with them. Now, D&D had almost died because the company that owned it, TSR, had almost died. It was bought by another company, and that other company, Wizards of the Coast, are the people who brought back D&D in 3rd Edition. And so uh, one of the people involved in getting 3rd Edition set up explicitly released D&D to open source so that no matter what happened with any corporate owner, because Wizards of the Coast was later bought by Hasbro, the massive huge monumental toy conglomerate that no matter who owned Wizards of the Coast, no matter who owned the intellectual property rights to D&D and all its unique monsters and stuff, no matter any of that, D&D would still exist for the fans. They could do anything they want with it. They could always bring it back. Now, after this got released out there, some people thought, hey, uh, people began writing modules, Necromancer games, for example, Mm -hmm. began writing modules that were uh, old school modules, but for the 3. Uh, 3.0 and 3.5 mechanics. And then other people said, now, wait a minute, we can take these mechanics and write up a reference document so that you can, using this open source license, write modules that are 100% compatible with any edition of D&D, going all the way back to the 0th edition, the white box. And so... They released a, a set that was based on ad and It wasn't intended at the, its original release. This is Osric now I'm talking about, O-S-R-I-C, which, um, and I've got the meaning of that right here in front of me, uh, if I can find it, old school reference and index compilation. All it was was a compilation of rules to allow module, people who write modules to write them for first edition ad and That's what their target was. And then, starting with that, a bunch of people made actual rule sets out of that. Osric later became an actual rule set and they began making things like, um, oh, just a, a whole bunch of clones, Labyrinth Lord, um, Swords and Wizardry, Dark Dungeons, Mages and Perils, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then started getting weirder and weirder from there. And people started making uh, space games uh, or science fiction games out of it. People started looking at it for emulating Gamma World, for example, some of the earlier things at Gamma Worlds. But that's what the old school 
Renaissance, the old school revival was, is a bunch of people on blogs, uh, people in message boards all across the internet who wanted to go back to the origins of D&D and figure out what they liked about those games that third edition in their minds lacked and that fourth edition Fourth edition was what really spurred this on. Fourth edition was widely loathed by just about everybody who had played any earlier editions of D&D. People hated it so much that they completely rejected it. It sank in the uh, sales to become second. D&D itself was second place behind a clone of third edition D&D. That's how much people hated fourth edition. D&D had always been number one in the role-playing scene. Now it was number two to a clone of its own rule set. Um, but people started, there was this explosion of creativity and the scene has kind of gone from there. There've been factions and infighting and stuff like that, but that's what the OSR is. That's where it came from. Right. And, it, and it's good stuff. You see a lot of great creativity coming out there. <laughs> I did a rant, goodness gracious, probably three years ago where I, I kind of said that I'm in the OSR, but I'm not. Um, and that was because of a lot of the infighting going on at the time, which I, I probably paid too much attention to, but, but the core aesthetic, I think when you get right down to my personal opinion of the OSR is the idea that you're always making your own game, right? There's enough commonality that other people that know OSR games can come in and sit down with you and play and catch on really fast. But the goal is always to make your own game, your own custom experience. And, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, and I, I think that it, that's one of the reasons why it's lasted so long. You've got a lot of very creative people with very clear visions you got space where you can see a, a huge variance. Like like you said, you can have guys with the same basic rule set doing, you know, aliens and, and uh, telepaths in deep space or a couple guys playing goblins that are living in the sewers under Paris. Same set of rules. Um, great stuff. It's wonderful stuff. Um, and the thing is, though, is, you know, the fourth edition was such a, a shock to some people. I don't think... It deserves quite a little of hate that it gets. Um, full disclosure, like I said earlier, I've got I've got a bunch of kids. I've got five children, and um, the oldest four have been playing in campaigns with me for nine years now. They're my primary gaming group. They bust out fourth edition once a month uh, and play it very assiduously. I don't have the time for that. And they also do some fifth edition, and we do well. We pretty much do everything. I think the the most common statement in my house is we have too many campaigns. <laughs> Best possible <laughs> problem to have. I know, right? It's a terrible problem. And you'll see stuff like, well, when are we getting back to Marvel? Well, we got too many campaigns. Okay, that's true. But when we get back to Marvel or or um, aftermath or whatever. But another thing that I I think that you're seeing a lot of that I that I think is wonderful is this sort of synergistic effect, uh, a lot of people that are in the OSR or coming to the OSR are turning around and doing what we see Jeffro doing, right? They're not just looking at where do the, what was the OSR rules, you know, and, uh, what some people laughingly call ur-D&D. There's no such thing as ur-D&D. You know, Gigas uh, hmm. himself was saying stuff like, well, do it your way, and everyone was immediately. I mean, I don't think I've ever sat at a table that didn't have house rules until the new millennium, right? Everybody had a house rules. Um, but when you start looking at that, look what Jeffro did. He looked at the books that came from him and it turned him into uh, a book critic who's doing some very positive stuff, talking about how we can take uh, what is effectively classic literature and learn from it and learn story structure, and, and et cetera. And you see that a lot 
in the gaming industry in general, but the OSR in particular, people expanding beyond and teaching themselves critical theory, uh, film theory, uh, learning the basics of composition, studying history in a very serious manner, going into anthropology, et cetera. And it's interesting because you see this growth of knowledge based upon, I want to make my particular game better, or I want to understand how to give my players a better experience. Um, I think that, you know, my, my own parents were uh, a little concerned about my obsession when I, when I was 12, 13 years old until they found out that I was actually bumming a ride to Indianapolis so they could go to the IUPUI University Library to study feudal taxation structures. <laughs> and, and I was doing that, and I, and I set it all up. I stayed with friends because I wanted to understand how feudal taxation structures worked so I could make my game better. In the era of the Internet and Google+, and Facebook, and Twitter, and all these other social media tools, that's easier than ever. And what you're seeing is a lot more people using gaming as a, a leaping off point for what can only be considered actual scholarship, you know? And um, how cool is that, that our hobbies are adding to uh, basically, in some ways, the knowledge of the world as you see people starting to make these connections and, and talk in a serious manner about the academic underpinnings of this uh, and to share that with the wider world. It, it can do nothing but be good, in my opinion. So we are running out of time very, very much. Rapidly. So. <laughs> well, I do, I do tend to talk a lot. If you hadn't been warned about that beforehand, you've learned your lesson by now. Um, before we uh, start to sign off, is there uh, anything you want to, uh, anything particularly exciting or cool about OSR or whatever that you want to share with the audience? Well, I think the most exciting that I like about the OSR is how much uh, sharing there is. If you go out there, you know, uh, you're going to find a lot of really professional quality resources that can be used by anybody that people are just like, here, use this. I like it. I made this. Have fun. Uh, that's, that leads to a lot of synergy. I think that's a ton of fun, especially in a world where game books themselves seem to be caught in what Lou Pulsifer calls the capitalist trap. Uh, we have to charge a ton of money for all the stuff, and all the splat books cost even more. Uh, it's kind of refreshing to see that there's a sort of camaraderie in the OSR where, oh, yeah, you need a custom map. Let me throw out a custom map. Or I've got this set of rules. Just have these rules. Uh, knock yourself out. Just remember to put my name on it. Um, it's nice. And and I'm I'm proud to be taking part of that. Awesome. All right, uh, Brian. Do you have any final words before we take off? Yeah. So uh, I have an announcement. All three books in my award-winning Soul Cycle science fiction fantasy horror series are currently less. If you buy all three of them, than one copy of John Scalzi's latest book in ebook format. It's available on Amazon. So. Go check that out. And links to his books are, of course, in the description beneath the video. Um, also, something new. Uh, I've been writing at the Castalia House blog for the last couple of months. If you want to link, if you want to read any of those stories, uh, any of the blog posts I've done, uh, which have proven to be controversial in certain quarters mm -hmm. if you want to check them out i put a link to uh the i tagged all of my blog posts with daddy warpig i put a link to that in the uh description of the video at the very very bottom it says daddy warpig at castelia house click on that and you can check out all the posts 
on the Castalia House blog. There's some really, really good stuff in there, so I highly encourage that. Uh, do you have any? Yeah, it is revelatory. <laughs> do, do you have any uh, any last thoughts, John, before we take off? Uh, I do actually. I'd love to continue this uh, later at, a, at another date. I want to move this from uh, talking about uh, how great OSR and everything is, and and I'd love to sit down and talk about uh, how, practicality, like how to implement that sort of thing in your in these games. I'd love to talk to you about mm. your like forty years of experience uh, playing and running. Oh, anytime. Games. I'd love to come back. Let me know, and and I'll be there. We can talk about that. That's the, uh, I can go on for hours about any topic. Just get, just name it. <laughs> All right. Um, let me. Uh, I'll, I will talk to John and uh, Rick after the show and make a suggestion on that. Um, last, but I, I guess that's me, right? I'm the last person. Do I have any thoughts? Uh, life isn't very really good. If you have a chance to see it, go ahead and watch it. It's a B science fiction horror movie, but it's got two big plot twists that you'll see that I saw coming months away. Um, Ghost in the Shell, I thought was great. I enjoyed it very, very much. If uh, you're a big, big fan of the anime, you may not find it. Uh, it's not a live-action remake of the anime. So you may find it aggravating in that sense. Um, and by all means, check out Rick Stump's blog. Uh, again, link is in the description. This has been Geek Gab for Saturday, April 1st, 2017. And just so you know, not a single word of anything we've said or done in this entire show has been an April Fool's. It's all been serious because I don't get into that internet April Fool's thing. Um, although I have heard that Nintendo is going to quit making video games and open up a series of Mario-themed bars instead. But the last, uh, last thing you should know is if you go to youtube.com slash geekgab, you can subscribe to the show. If you're subscribed to the show, click on it and there'll be a little bell icon there because apparently now subscribing doesn't mean subscribing. You have to double subscribe so you can get on the actual announcements when we go live. If you want to get emails in your inbox telling you that we're going live at some point, then you'll have to click on the subscription button and click on the little bell icon, and then you'll get email announcements uh, concerning the show. YouTube.com slash GeekGab. This is episode uh, 92. You can watch all of our prior episodes. Also, uh, you can catch us on SoundCloud. Just do a search for GeekGab. You can catch us on the iTunes Music Store. Just do a search for GeekGab. You can subscribe there and automatically down the podcast to your computer, and you can then put it on your iPod or iPhone or uh, iPad, whatever. Listen to us whenever and wherever you want. And just in case you have an Android device, we're also available on the Google Play Store. So if you download the Google Play app, do a search for GeekGab. You can subscribe to us there and get all the show. Or, and this is the highly recommended option, we do the show live, generally Saturdays or Sundays, generally about this time. If you double secret subscribe, just again, click on that bell icon. You'll get announcements as window it's going live. You can come and listen to the show live and participate in the chat and ask actual questions that we will answer live on the air. So thank you all for turning in, folks. We are signing off for today, but don't you fret. We will be back.